0: Here, to begin, are eight things that you probably didn't know about Dr. John Dee, who was born in 1527 and who died in 1608, though it might have been 1609. The dates of people's birth and death in the 16th and 17th century are often movable feasts. Dr. John Dee coined the word Britannia, and he developed a plan for the British Navy, the first organized plan. He was the first man to apply Euclidean geometry to navigation, and so he built the instruments and indeed helped to train that extraordinary generation of his Elizabethan explorers and navigators uh, who circumnavigated the globe in the case of Drake, explored the Northwest and the Northeast frontiers. At his death, or before his death rather, he was the possessor of the grandest and greatest library in England with over 4,000 books. Queen Elizabeth I chose him as her magus, as her professional wizard, if you like, and indeed he cast a horoscope, and it was he who determined the date that was thought propitious for her coronation. He was an alchemist, a hermeticist, a cabalist, and an adept in esoteric and occult law. Fact number six, he put a terrible spell on the Spanish Armada, which is why there was that terrible stormy weather, and England beat the Spanish, at least at sea, if not at football. He was also an angel conjurer who, with his sinister colleague, a scriber, Edward Kelly, tried to transcribe and translate Enochian. That's the language of the angels. And his conjuring table, which contains what he thought was the Enochian alphabet, can be seen in the British Museum. Eighth and last, and there are many more, but I've only chosen eight, Shakespeare depicted Dr. John Dee as Prospero, we think, in his late play, The Tempest. And some people, mostly I think members of the John Dee fan club, see him as King Lear too. Well, this is the story that Damon Orban and Rufus Norris tell in their music drama, Dr. Dee. In an age, the 17th century, when the boundaries between science and magic, sympathetic, white magic, were a great deal more fluid than they are now. In an age when alchemy, for example, wasn't simply about greed, turning base metals into gold, but was also a way of improving your own spiritual self and identity. But it's also a story, perhaps, about the rise and fall of a remarkable Renaissance man, first valued by Elizabeth I and her advisers, notably her spymaster, Walsingham, quite one of the darkest figures at Elizabeth's court, and then finally abandoned by the court and by Walsingham. A man who loses influence, patrons and above all his great library, ending embittered and an object of ridicule by most of society except for his only daughter, Catherine, who remains with him as a companion. Well, we're going to be joined later by Rufus Norris, who is currently working on another show at the National Theatre, and who will dash back here, who is the co-creator of Dr. D and the director. Uh, Rufus also directed Mozart's Don Giovanni here at English National Opera last season, and it's being revived again next season. But first, we have guests Musical guests, Murray Hipkin, who is the assistant conductor on Dr. D and the repetiteur and a member of English National Opera's music staff. The countertenure, Daniel Keating Roberts, who covers the role of Kelly, the scriver, and the soprano, A.D. Grummet, who is covering the roles of Old Catherine, Elizabeth, Young Catherine, and Spirit. So will you please welcome Murray Hipkin, Daniel Keating Roberts, and A.D. Grummet? A very tender, but with a distinctly kind of Renaissance Elizabethan feel to it.
1: Oh, definitely, yes.
0: Almost a kind of madrigal in a kind of way.
1: Yes, yes, although the tempo's quite free, and I think the uh, conversation, shall we say, between the voice and the instruments is, is flexible in that way mm. of a lot of um, medieval and Tudor music.
0: Daniel, let's turn to Kelly, who, your, who's your principal role you're covering, and, and we're going to hear you sing Kelly, one of Kelly's uh, moments in a while. Who exactly
2: is Kelly? Is he the villain of the piece, do you think? Um, well, there are seven, there are, there's more than one villain of this piece, I think. Uh, but Kelly certainly misuses Dee. Um, he convinces him that he can, he can speak this language of the angels, the Enochian, uh, and so makes himself um, very much needed by D. Um, to do the things that he needs to do. So he's a con artist. <laughs> he is indeed a con artist. And there's an
0: extraordinary bargain he tries to impose, or does impose on Dee, doesn't he? Tell us a bit about that. Not a thing you'd expect to happen in a nice place. Uh, yes, completely ruining
2: the story for everyone. Um, <laughs> well, he, if you he, feel it does, don't tell us. but... Spoilers. Uh, Spoilers. I, I, I don't think it makes too much difference. Um, he becomes besotted by Dee's wife, Jane. And so he convinces Dee that the gods, the angels, are telling him that he should share his wife <laughs> with him. It's a very
0: old line, chat-up line, then, isn't it? <laughs> and we've all heard oh, it God sometimes in our lives. What can I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, we've heard the music. The that, that, that AD sings as as, as as
2: the as the young um, daughter. What what kind of music does Kelly have? Um, much the same. I mean, the, it's a theme through the through the operas. I imagine Damon, who sits at the, at the top of the stage, is a sort of modern-day troubadour, um, uh, sort of plying, plying his trade, and a lot of the, the Kelly music is very sort of song esque mm-hmm.
0: And do you feel that? Like, uh, for a realistic question, for both of you, do you feel the characters that you play are com- contain within the music
2: that, 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 that Damon's written for you? Uh, very much. I, I think that, that, yeah, I, I mean, it, it really does sum up, sum up our characters, I think.
1: Definitely, definitely, yeah. definitely yes. I, I certainly know um, covering the three singing roles um, the differentiation in sound world between the three characters that <laughs> I've had to get good at um, uh, is very definite. It's, it's not difficult to tell who's who at any point.
0: Murray, you've been with the show since the very beginning, mm. right the way through its, its gestation here at the Coliseum. And what kind of demands does it impose,
3: do you think, on the singers? Well, the very first one is that there's no space in this, in this company or in this production for any ego at all. So, that's the first thing they all had to get used to. Um, but it's, it's worth explaining that the, the cast and the ensemble, as we've called them, um, is made up of a, a group of people who have quite wide-ranging and sometimes different specialities. but most of them are full-on what we call triple threat, actors, singers and dancers that you might more normally find in a West End show. And we've added to that um, f- uh, five or four opera singers and a, and a singer who's, who's used to doing a lot of um, devised theatre and uh, contemporary music. Um, and you can't really sort of tell where the joins are because of the way that the ensemble in the end works together. The, um, the singers, as well as having their own solo parts, some of them, um, or dance parts, whatever, also um, sing backing vocals too. And it was interesting that um, we, um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about the sort of process of change and rewrites all the time, but there was one quite late change, which um, realised that people watching the show couldn't tell who was singing at first because the first thing you hear from the ensemble is they're not visible, they're back and backing uh, backing Damon, in fact. And so um, Rufus um, felt it was important earlier in the show than had been the case to, to actually see the faces of the people who were singing. So you, the audience kind of work out that actually it's not just a load of booth singers who are sitting there doing their knitting and singing when the the light comes on and it is actually the ensemble who are are doing all the 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 acting and the dancing as well so that that was the right it's such an organic process they've been able to play to everybody's strengths as well indeed but um the, the the main challenges on everybody um aside from the fact that they're never just singing they're always moving something or doing a cartwheel or um standing on their head or moving, you know, there's one actor who has to sort of lie under this bed and move it around on the stage, and I'm sure he's singing at the same time, Um, and then if they're not, if they're not on stage doing something, they're in the wings finding a monitor and finding a conductor and probably changing a costume at the same time and still singing. Um, So it's, you can see about it's a bit like an iceberg. You can see just a bit of it on there, but actually, if you could see backstage as well, you'd realise there's a whole choreographed production going on there. Um, and the other, the other main challenge that that um, we all we've all had to um, work with is is the constant rewriting. Which, again, singers from the West End the musical world maybe when they're doing a new show will be much more used to. But for some of us, it's been um, quite an eye opener, and the fact that you know. We'd, you know, Damon or, or Stevie or somebody or Rufus even would, would say, look, let's try something a little bit different here and, and you, they'd get their phones out and press record and you'd play it on the piano and they'd record it and they'd go off into the corner and come back 10 minutes later and having worked it out and then we'd do it and it'd be different and then they just wipe the previous version and, you know, I'm used to sort of people needing six rehearsals to do that so it's, it's, been, um, it's been quite extraordinary. Well, we'll perhaps come back to some of these issues because I, we have now with us at the back uh, the
0: director, co-creator wow. of Dr. D, Rufus Norris. Will you please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Rufus <clears throat> Have, a Have a seat and pull a microphone towards you. Um, Rufus, this show begins
4: in Manchester some while ago. Just tell me about how, how the whole project began. First of all, I'd like to apologise uh, for being late, everybody. Sorry, I've just uh, run from rehearsals. Elsewhere, uh, please for me. We've told them where you were. Yeah. They were very <laughs> impressed. Once, it, it, so, <laughs> um, so, when the show begins, how did it all begin, this whole project? The project started with Alex Poot, who's the, um, the very clever chap who runs the Manchester International Festival. And he's, uh, he's one of those incredible impresarios who takes very improbable mixes of people and bungs them together in a way which uh, which means that there will inevitably be a teething process and sparks but hopefully the end result will be something extraordinary and completely new he'd be the first to admit that it's a not exactly a hit and miss pro- uh, system of working but it, but it means the stakes are, are generally pretty high and nobody has any idea what's going to come out at the end of it he, he started by approaching Alan Moore who's the um, some of you may know as a graphic novelist who uh, wrote V for Vendetta The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and various other um, uh, graphic novels he, he's kind of the great British graphic novelist of his time really but he's also a magician and um, bears a striking resemblance in some ways to a certain John Dee <laughs> and, uh, uh, and his, um, he's, he's an extraordinary chap Alan, um, in lots of ways Alex approached him and said who's the greatest dead Englishman more or less and he said John Dee for these reasons Alex then approached Damon and myself and asked if we wanted to get involved in this um, process with Alan. And we went part way down that line. Alan's a recluse, apart from anything else. Um, It's very difficult to get him out of Northampton. And in the end, he felt that the process wasn't for him, that it did it um, for reasons that we weren't told and we won't ever really know. Um, He just withdrew, which in some ways was not a surprise because of the sort of person he is. But by then, he'd completely enthused us with the idea of, who, of this man and, and what he stood for and his incredible um, legacy, really, in all sorts of ways uh, on our culture. Once it was underway, and it really was
0: you and Damon Orban who were working together, how did the collaboration work? What did you actually do together?
4: Um, it's, very, it's very interesting. I've worked with... Um, on musicals where the music's already been written and I work with various composers in, in different formats. Um, and there is, a, there is a sort of standard process uh, where you, have a li- you, you find a subject matter, you write a libretto, the composer will often have a strong opinion about which areas of that character's life or which form of music they like to be writing in, et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of different combinations. But there will be a libretto and the composer will use that sometimes word for word but more usually as a springboard to um to write from um, so after alan left i started working on the on the libretto with another writer and we got i suppose three quarters of the way through a fairly healthy first draft and damon just just without wishing to insult him he sort of didn't know which way to hold up the paper it just was so um it, alien to him that way of working that you'd actually take anything from from what someone had written about somebody rather than the absolutely getting as close as you can to the source material so after a few months of that I had a very kind of crunch meeting with Damon and he basically said I can't work this way and I said clearly that that's you know that's what that's what we're doing now so what we're going to do and he said what he'd really like to do is to... Uh, it was complicated by the fact that he then had a, a huge world tour, world guerrillas tour, sprung on him. Um, and he had to go off to do that. And he said, what I'd like to do is to. I'm just going to keep reading. He's a, he, a prolific um, researcher. Um, and then I'm going to have an intensive two-month writing process where we can, you can come in, give me as much stuff as you like, and we'll, um, we'll work up a load of sketches then. And then we'll have seven or eight weeks intensive rehearsal period with a bunch of people that you think will be good that we can find um, so all the casting that we done was then you know uh, we let everybody go and started again and got together a group of people that we thought would be up for that kind of seat of the pants completely intensive uh, from from your
0: perspective you know coming from a a theatre where there is a text and there's work to be made one thinks of Fest and one thinks of um, even the musical you did at the National um, um, with Adam Cork um, there is it must have been quite a risky moment dangerous moment I mean you're jumping really almost off a precipice at this point aren't you
4: yeah yeah I mean it did feel quite scary but but actually it's not that far from the stuff that I was doing originally and I've done a fair amount of devised work and stuff and and um, in all the work that I do, it's about the people that you're doing it with more than anything. And Damon is a completely inspirational person to work with. Um, he's totally in, uninhibited um, in his writing style. Um, the, the tap is always on. He's got an incredibly low boredom threshold. Um, and you know, if I'm if I'm talking to him about uh, a, an area that doesn't particularly interest him, I really have to go and no, you just concentrate, just open your eyes, stay uh, ten seconds. This will take, and he goes, right, I'll try, I'll try. <laughs> and then he's gone because he just can't engage with it unless it's feeding him. So the question then really is is about making sure that you get on track mm-hmm. to tap that, uh, that incredible talent. So it was really, yeah, it was, it was scary. But, um, but, you know, if you look at the creative team that we've got on the show, you know, that, um, I brought all, all the A-list crew in to, to help, you know, we've got a fantastic team. And everybody's up for that. I mean, it's, you know, if the subject matter is strong. And we had, you know, actually, quietly, I had written a libretto. I did know, I know everything about his life story. Um, It was never going to be a historical, uh, you know, work through of Dee's life. And you will find that it is more like a meditation, a tone poem on on Damon's reflection on Englishness and John Dee, rather than a a step-by-step trog through his very, very long and complex life. Um, you'd have been here all night if if we'd have attempted to do that. Um, to be practical for him, we, we we can we have
0: images on the screen next to us of the production. The one thing that becomes immediately clear is there is a band on stage. Uh, there's also uh, an ensemble in the pit in the conventional space. When did you decide you were going to have the split uh, musical resources, and, and what was the
4: idea behind it? Well, the first um, the the, the principal. Um, turning point in that was that once Damon started writing in that intensive period it became clear to him that he had to sing and he had to perform in it which was not the original plan and then the ballpark changed completely because then Damon's on stage and how do you use him on stage? You can't ask him to act or put him in a, a rough. Uh, that's not going to work. So um, if he's on stage then, then who's he on stage with? And also the way that he was writing into it um, he's very... Um, he, he appears to be very eclectic in his in, in the, the sources that he draws from, um, but actually there's a very deep-rooted reason behind all of it. You'll notice on stage there are two in the back in the um, what we call the band. There are two um, West Africans, Tony Allen, who's uh, the drummer who was, I mean, he's completely uh, uh, he's the greatest drummer that's come out of Africa. Really, um, uh, was behind Fela Kuti. Um, literally behind him and kind of invented Afrobeat with him uh he's 73 and going much stronger than um I was even 10 years ago um but he's got a very very primal relationship with the spirit and the esoteric because that division that happened in our society in the 16th century between science and magic between religion and uh spirituality or the esoteric um, has n- never happened or certainly has only happened much more recently with the rise of evangelism in West Africa. Um, so there's a direct connection to something very primal that Dee was tapping into that made a lot of sense today. Similarly the kora which is a Malian harp effectively an oh. instrument that hasn't changed for 800 years is, um, is the purveyor of um, the oral history of West Africa and, and oh. the the kora player is somebody who is uh, who is understood to be transcending a normal mental state when they 're playing when you see Madhu play he's so you won 't see him play you'll just see there 's this figure here with this incredible music coming out what 's very fascinating though is that he sat next to the Theobo player. These instruments could not have any um, genetic similarity and but, the, but what they do together is very beautiful to come back to your second question what 's the So that was kind of built around what Damon was doing. The relationship between them and the orchestra is, can be put most simply in terms of the, the, it's probably not giving too much away to say that the band, you will go in and you'll see the band on the floor and they rise up and then they come down again. And the rising up summons up the story of John Dee while the orchestra play in the pit. The orchestra are, if you like, infernal. The action takes place on the earth and the band are astral for want of it. It's a very simplistic way. Of course, they, they overlap a lot, but that's a uh, way of uh, summing it up.
0: And when you make that division into to heaven, earth and, and hell, that kind of classic division that you'd have seen, let's say, medieval mystery plays, you might also have seen it in, in something people have commented in Elizabethan and, indeed, later Court Masks. These emblematic dramas, were you aware of, of that tradition and wanting somehow to find
4: these kind of allegorical dramas uh, as a kind of style? No, not really, I was aware of them, but it wasn't until we opened in Manchester and somebody said, oh, it's an Elizabethan mask, that we thought, oh, yes it is, fancy that. That's just the way it it worked out. Um, I feel like it's less that now because we've had a chance to um, develop and uh, integrate the music more. It was more episodic. It was more like a series of movements that were less. I mean, it still has that structure to it. There are 13 movements in each half. each one dealing with a certain period of, of Dee's life. Um, but hopefully they're slightly more slightly more intertwined, um, so it's less like a formal Elizabethan mask in that sense.
0: Um, I was reflecting on my way in this afternoon that, that, that Dr. John Dee, for, and I know a great deal thanks to you, the two of you and others, um, is almost an unknown figure, really. And, I, and I, why is it that we know so little about this man? What makes him actually so
4: interesting? Um, there's two different questions. The, the the reason that we know so little about him is that because because of his exploration and his communication with angels, he fell foul in the latter days uh, of Elizabeth's reign with the um, uh, with the kind of upper echelons of society. But particularly when James the came in, uh, all of that stuff was very very much demonised. Um, Marlowe wrote Faust, and that was. Probably aimed to a degree, or certainly modelled on D, and um, and he was ridiculed and humiliated um, in the latter part of his life, um, and I think was was effectively rubbed out of the history books, um, and a lot of his a lot of the the contributions that he that he made. There's all sorts of things that we don't that we don't touch on. He was he developed the. Um, all the code-writing and code-breaking that Walsingham used to set up the secret service. He termed the phrase the British Empire. He gave Elizabeth I the Arthurian mythological justification for expansion. He identified which forest um, the British Armada would have to be built out of when the Spanish Armada was finally built, which was going to happen quite soon, uh, which would be followed by the Spanish So, years and years before the... and Ten years before the... Armada occurred, he'd already identified which forest needed to be protected. So when the Spanish spies came over to burn that forest down, uh, there were guards there to prevent them from doing it. His signature was two eyes and an eyebrow over the top, which I'm doing the wrong way around. If you imagine it that way, that way, and over there, that's 007, and that's where Ian Fleming got that from, because he was one one of the first spies. Alistair Crowley considered himself to be a direct reincarnation of Edward Kelly, who was the medium that he worked with and so on and so on and so on they're all when newton talked of standing on the shoulders of giants he was principally talking about john dee but yes james i um, can can largely be credited with making sure that nobody would know about him beyond that merlin is based on him i mean there's all sorts of prospero the outdone Al- johnson's the alchemist that the, he lives on in in mythological terms but uh,
0: but he also reminds us that our contemporary uh, frontier, a uh, fairly high frontier between, um, shall we say, science and um, uh, adept studies, astrology, uh, for example, uh, was not one that existed. I mean, we need to remind ourselves that Newton, too, was, uh, was fascinated by astrology, that, that, in a sense, he's a reminder of the wholeness of knowledge rather than its, its
4: compartmentalization. Absolutely. I mean, I think that compartmentalization is something which happened progressively since then. And we're now in an age, very literal age, where we can state absolutely that uh, science is the, you know, and yet every five years a new scientific theory will come forward that says that actually what we were absolutely sure of five years ago is not the case, and now this is absolutely, etc etc, and so it, and, and so it goes on. But at that time, yes, it, it seemed logical to try and talk to angels because everybody knew that they existed. And all Dee was doing, I think, is applying, and he applied it in, a, in an incredibly uh, strict manner, the knowledge, the geometrical, mathematical knowledge that, that he'd accrued from everywhere. When he was 40, his library was 10 times the size of the library of Cambridge University at the time. He was absolutely the go-to man for all kinds of knowledge, and he was, just, he was just doing the next natural step, which is to talk to God. There wasn't anybody in the country smart enough to take the conversation further, so why not have a direct hotline if you can manage it? And through Edward Kelly, he seemed to access that.
0: And last question, because I know you've got to go to do to, 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 to a warm-up on the stage, but um, do you think there's a modern resonance in this story that we should 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 pay attention to?
4: Well, I think that w- what Damon finds fascinating about it... I mean, anyone who knows Damon's work will know that he has this curious love affair with England. Um, English melancholy goes through all of his work, even the most kind of front-foot um, stuff that he's done. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're at a, a stage now... That was Elizabeth I, now we're with another Elizabeth. And we are an, a nation in decline uh, without question. The whole of Europe is at the moment um, British Empire now, which was, which was very much formulated um, in Dee's time, largely with his help. Raleigh and Drake and all these people very much went to Dee for that, for that um, nautical know-how on all sorts of fronts. Um, it, the, we, in a way, we're in the mirror age of that. And, and we're also in an age where, I mean, I think, I think probably like a lot of British or English people, we think that this level of um, capitalism, obsession with our mobiles and celebrity and all the rest of it is worldwide. It is particularly uh, bad in this country, I think. Um, so I think we are, we're, we are at an, a stage of, as Damon puts it, anti-spirit. Um, so that, so there, is a, um, there is a contemporary feel to it, reflection on that, 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 that a lot of things that were being explored and, and uh, looked into by D. he was thinking out the box in a way that was then, was then really um, verboten in, in the kind of Christian capitalist society that, that um, emerged after that uh, th- th- yeah we're now at a stage where, where it might be healthy to, to be slightly more open minded about about, um, about the sort of work that, that Dee was or the sort of mind that Dee had anyway Rufus, thank you very much
0: for finding time to be with us. Rufus Norris Danger. Pleasure. I am a scribe. A sudden thought occurred to me, actually. Daniel used to singing uh, in relation to what Rufus was saying about, about, about Damien Orbán's interest in Englishness. I mean, here you are a countertenor. We could think this is actually something distinctly English, although there are plenty of American European, but in a sense, perhaps the tradition or the modern tradition of the tenor goes back to Alfred Deller and to a particularly English idea and an English choral tradition. Is that fair, do you think?
2: Uh, definitely fair. I mean, uh, the, the countertenor um, was only really kept alive in the, in the English churches, uh, particularly. Um, when the castati fell, fell from favour, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I think we should leave it there. Um, <laughs> uh, Mario,
0: I want to come back to something that we were talking about just before you mm. talked to Rufus. This whole process in which the show is evolving and changing. Mm. I mean, one way of thinking of this is of absolute terror. The other is the, the sheer excitement of being present at the moment in which a show is evolving. How did you
3: feel? Well, on, on the very first day... <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> the very first day, um, I had what I can only describe as a panic attack after about half an hour because I was sitting with a draft score, which Stevie Higgins, the conductor, had notated um, from the material in Manchester and from some more material that had been generated in between times. And even on the first day, looking at it, I couldn't always make sense of what I was hearing and what I was saying, and I'm afraid it kind of... But I I very quickly... um, realized that that was just there as a kind of a starting point. And I was going to give you one example of something. I referred to it earlier when you know, we change things and the singers record it. There's a, um, in the, um, towards the end, there's, a, there's a, an extended sequence, um, which uh, you've probably read that some of the reviews have referred to Philip Glass moments. Well, this is one of them without any question, where well, there's a repetitive thing going round and round. And I, I was going to quote it and I'll get it wrong now. You, Faust, John, D, John, D, Conjurer, John is the phrase. And it just comes round and round and round and round. And when they did it in Manchester, they did each of those nine times before moving on to the next harmony. And then, a, um, it, and Rufus and Damon decided it was going to be a bit shorter this time. So we had five of these. And then we were in the orchestra rehearsal. You know, we can all see the pound signs kind of going round and round and round with the whole orchestra sitting there. And Damon suddenly stood up and said, no, it's too Puritan. No, sorry, forgive me. It's too Catholic. It needs to be more Puritan. And the silence in the air was kind of, Okay, right. Um, But mainly because all the singers had spent hours and hours practising it this way and remembering the harmonies and remembering how many times to do everything at the same time as doing all this kind of incredibly complex and very um, specific movement. And there was this kind of, right, we're on stage in two days' time. But so Damon came up with some suggestions and said, well, just try it, just try it. So we tried it. And the results you'll hear later, it starts with just orchestra and then it comes in a fragmented form and gradually builds up and i have to hand it to those um the ensemble i don't know how they did it like that but they just did and um, so that's an example of, of what of, of what the kind of thing that was going on and as, as you say um chris it was the kind of excitement of a kind of being there and trying the thing and realizing that damon was right all along as he always is <laughs> well
5: <laughs> actually,
3: I'm just going to say this because I'm so proud of the moment when he came up to me and said, you were right. <laughs> it, it happened once. It was a real clash <laughs> of cultures, wasn't it,
2: from, from Damon, sort of, who, um, who, who likes to work much freer and... Uh, and I
3: prefer to think the... of it as a marriage,
2: actually. A, a marriage, there, yeah, a marriage of cultures. Well, we got there in but the end. No, I, the I was, it
3: was something, I mean, I, here's my bit of paper, and right. I wrote collision stroke marriage of cultures, sometimes in opposition, sometimes not, and... Um, it's been the most for for, for me working here. For most of my career, um, it's been the most refreshing thing. Um, you've obviously developed an extraordinary uh, aberration
0: for, for Damon Albarn. I have indeed. That, that, what, if I ask you, I know this is a terrible oh. question to ask anybody. It's on is my list it? of questions, I don't <laughs>
3: know. and he'll be listening to this. <laughs>
0: what, what what is
3: the quality of the music that you you've come to value and cherish? I think the fact that it absolutely refuses to be defined because everyone wants to know what it is and they, want, they, they seem to need to know whether it's an opera I mean, you've, Rufus has already spoken about um, the fact that somebody said well that's, that's the mask well again they, they may well be right and as, as, as Rufus said he and Damon said actually yeah it's a bit more like that but why do we even need to call it that why do we need to call it anything let's call it Dr. D mm-hmm. and just go to it and, and, and not try and shove it into a box. I mean, my granny always used to say labels of her jam jars, and she was right. (laughs) Let's not, let's not, let's just accept it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, there is a chance if you would like to ask questions of our three guests, there is a a roving microphone. If you'd like to put your hand up, there, there will be a roving microphone. If you'd like to put your hand up and catch my... We're going to be very English and sit on our hands, I suspect. We have one in the the background. I would
1: like to follow on from this lady here and just say that since I came to work on the show, which is only recently, um, and I have found it, and sitting through all the uh, rehearsals and the stage, and they're very slow because it's an incredibly technical production. There's so much, Murray was saying, you know, you only see the tip of the iceberg. There is so much that can go wrong (laughs) in this show. So watching all those rehearsals, I found this whole piece invading my dreams and I found the music entrancing in a way that I cannot get it out of my head and you know I've been a professional for millions of years and I cannot press delete on this piece and it's driving me nuts but it is entrancing music and it has invaded my dreams in that very strange undefinable way
0: a question at the back yes and we'll come back to you
1: as you said professor that this show was part of the arts festival which from my understanding is part of the culture olympiad so i was just wondering if you as actors or as triple threats feel um, <laughs> any connection to the olympic games like any special connection putting on the show i live two tube stops from olympic park <laughs> <laughs> i'm think... battening down the hatches <laughs> I don't
2: think you can avoid it in london right now <laughs>
0: Uh, There was one more question at the front row, which I think may be our last question.
5: It's a very minor, minor point. But right at the beginning, when um, the subject was being introduced, I felt, um, for all the excellent reasons, there was a kind of groping for the words to just express what we were going to hear and see. And the word ecstatic sort of popped into my mind completely out of the blue. I was thinking that's a tradition in religion that goes back thousands of years. It's been in and out of Christianity in its various forms and the Shia branch of Islam. Uh, there is a very sort of um, well-established tradition of that ecstasy. And I was just thinking of the scrying and various other manifestations and perhaps things that don't go into words like music. Just a thought.
0: Did you have a sense, Murray, off-the-wall question for you, that, 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 that there is a sense of, of, of the kind of notion of ecstasy within some of the music that relates most particularly to the scrying, but also to, to D himself as a kind of figure?
3: Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we just happened because we've talked about so much and we've only really touched on, um, is the fact that there's so much opportunity for improvisation, both for the, um, the band um, as distinct from the orchestra that we were hearing about, um, the cora and the um, theorbo, for example. Um, and some of the places that that those two instruments take us, as um, Rufus mm-hmm. mentioned, um, are quite extraordinary. And and some of the divining scenes are um, vocally improvised. That's why I'm covering, understudying, it. it's been <laughs> such an interesting challenge <laughs> for has, these two. It has, it has. Thankfully, have to have I've these... known
1: Melanie a long yes, time, <laughs> yes. so I know what she's like. Yes. <laughs>
3: So, so um, well. I mean, you judge for yourselves. But but um, I, I, I was a, finally able to sit back and on Tuesday night at the, at the press night, because we had dress rehearsal and first night on Monday, and I was you know heading the score and really doing my job. But Tuesday night, I kind of sat back and really tried to watch it and listen to it in, in a in a in a new way. And and I have to say, it got me here, particularly in the second half. Um, so I think, yes, I think if you open yourselves up to and just allow, thing, allow, allow it to to really touch you, then I think you'll go somewhere tonight. And I hope you enjoy it. Some thanks, first of all, to all of you for being here this evening. A reminder
0: that we shall be back with pre-performance talks next season. And I think probably on your seats or at least at the back, at the back, OK, there are the dates and, and the events that we'll be doing next year. But part of the most important thing is to say thank you to our to our guests today, to Murray Hipkin. Daniel Keating Roberts and to A.D. Graham. Thank you all three very much indeed for being here.